Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash Canada EHX. I'm also hosting a Zoom history conference on Sunday, September 27th at 2 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. It's free, and it's all about the 1915 Edmonton flood. It's the worst flood in the city's history. It's a really interesting story, and the conference runs for about 40 minutes over Zoom. So if you'd like to register, just email me at craig at canadaehx.com. I'm going to play you a little song, and if you're of a certain age... It's going to bring back memories. Memories of sitting in front of the television, watching TV with your family on the Sunday evening before school or before work. It's a song known to millions of Canadians. So here it is. The theme music to the Beachcombers is like an instant nostalgia shot for a few generations of Canadians. It sparks those memories that I was talking about of Sunday nights, of television with the family, and the stories of Relic and Jesse and Constable John, Molly, and of course, Nick. If you pitched it today, a story of a Greek man who salvaged logs off the coast with his friend, who was indigenous with a grandmother and two grandchildren operating out of a cafe, it's unlikely the show would get greenlit. Not only was the show greenlit in Canada, it would go on to change Vancouver, the Canadian film industry, and it would become an integral part of Canadian culture. The Beachcombers is considered one of the greatest Canadian television shows in history, and one of the longest-running Canadian shows ever, with 387 episodes. It was a show ahead of its time, with its portrayal of Indigenous characters, a focus on the environment, and an ensemble cast of characters that would shape future Canadian television all the way to 2020. Today I'm looking at this show that went from being a show that people enjoyed in the 70s to a part of Canadian culture and an iconic piece of Canadian television. I also have interviews today with Jody Franklin, who runs an art gallery in Gibsons, Nancy Chapel Smokler, who played the original Margaret on the show, and Jackson Davies, who played Constable John Constable in over 170 episodes. I'll also have some archival audio and bits of behind-the-scenes stories from David Kroll, who is a town councillor in Gibsons, but worked on the show for over a decade. The history of the Beachcombers begins with a show called Adventures in Rainbow Country, which was a family adventure series made by William Davidson. This series followed a single mother, her son, and her son's indigenous friend on their adventures north of Lake Huron. Due to changes in leadership at the CBC and conflicts with the Manitoulin Productions, which was run by Davidson, funding was pulled on the project. Everything changed when the show hit the airwaves and earned 4 million viewers, second only to Hockey Night in Canada. Without having adventures in Rainbow Country, but seeing the public's appetite for that type of show, the idea to create a similar show but on the West Coast was born. CBC envisioned a show that had a single mother, a father figure, and three children, one of whom had to be Indigenous. Phil Keatley was assigned to the project, and he began working with Mark and Lynn Susan Strange. Their first idea of a show set during the Great Depression was rejected, and they had two weeks to figure out an alternative. One day while walking on the beach together, the Stranges saw some people beachcombing, which is salvaging logs and selling them. They were intrigued by the job, and they came up with a show titled Molly's Reach, which would focus on a Greek character and a single mother named Molly who ran a cafe. The idea was accepted, but CBC changed the name to The Beachcombers. 
CBC story editor Susan Finley went to Vancouver to oversee the writing and would replace the Stranges who left early in production, but would return later in the show's run. The focus of the show was on a wholesome environment that the whole family could enjoy, empathy for outsiders who came to the community, and a respect for the natural environment. Storylines tended to be comedic at first, and with the development of the show beginning, the characters being established, work began to cast those parts. Bruno Gerussi was a well-known stage actor and a radio show host in the country. He had performed at the Stratford Festival in the second season of the festival's run, and in 1960 was in the role of Romeo at the first production of Romeo and Juliet at the Stratford Festival, and he would take on the part of Nick Adonitis, the Greek-Canadian beachcomber and the father figure of the series. Bruno was interviewed in 1961 by CBC, long before the Beachcombers, when he was an up-and-coming stage actor. Is this your first beard? I grew this a couple of months ago for a show I did at the Crest, and then I had to shave it off. And, uh, I don't know, I started looking in the mirror and it started getting to me, you know, and the cue my kids liked it, so I grew it back for this thing. You know? There's an old expression when you see a beard, I used to, you used to holler, beaver, you know, and, and uh, do something like this, and I can't remember what it is now. <laughs> uh, what about this summer for you in Stratford? I'm going to Stratford. I'm going to play um, Macduff in uh, Macbeth and Ariel in The Tempest. Looking back on uh, two of your performances, one would be Peer Gant and the other would be Romeo. Uh, would you say that these have perhaps been your highlights in the last few years? Yeah, uh, certainly in terms of what one has been able to do as an actor, in terms of stretching yourself, you know, uh, particularly Peer Gant, it was the first big... Uh, big heavy role, you know, not dramatic, but a big, big role that I... Very demanding role. Yes, and in terms of, of the classics, a marvelous part, uh, that was, you know, something that obviously was a big thing for me, and so was Romeo, although just recently I did a play at the Crest that I think I enjoyed almost as much the, the zoo story. Again, a, a part, not in the same sort of scale, but a marvelous kind of part, you know. Uh, Bruno almost made it into Camelot down in New York. Yeah. <laughs> uh, tell me about this. Minute. Well, I got a call from uh, the casting people in New York. Uh, they knew Douglas Campbell, and they were running around looking. You know, they want everything. They want a guy who's going to boost the show, and they, they want him for no money, and uh, they want everything. <laughs> so, and a guy who can play the part. So uh, Campbell said, well, I'll get Jerusi. He can do it with his eyes closed, you know. But he's got, you know, you're not going to get him for nothing. They said, oh, no, no, no. Anyway, I went down. They paid the shot. I had five marvelous days in New York, and I don't know. They said I was too mature for the <laughs> Well, it's pretty hard to replace Roddy McDowell. You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to keep the sexual tension between Molly and Nick from occurring, Molly was rewritten as a grandmother rather than a mother, and Ray Brown was cast in the role. Brown was a veteran of radio and television and had done extensive work in both industries as well as voice acting, and she was a cast member at the first play, The Hostage, ever performed at the Vancouver Playhouse. Her grandchildren would be played by Bob Park and Nancy Chapel playing the parts of Hugh and Margaret. For the Indigenous friend, Pat John was cast in the role of Jesse. This would begin a trend of the beachcombers to have prominent Indigenous characters who are not portrayed as stereotypes. Relic, the rival of Nick in the beachcombing business, was cast to Robert Clothier. Clothier was quite an interesting man leading up to his defining role as Relic. During the Second World War, he flew in the 408 squadron of the RCAF, earning the Distinguished Flying Cross on December 5, 1944, for attacking heavily defended targets, described in his citation as, with great determination and by his personal example of courage, coolness, and confidence, has set an example which has inspired all with whom he has flown. He would be involved in a plane crash three weeks later while serving as an instructor in Boundary Bay, British Columbia. The crash would result in the death of three on board, with Clothier being the only survivor. He suffered a broken back and was paralyzed from the waist down for two years. He would begin studying theatre in England, return to British Columbia where he worked as a stage actor, sculptor, and painter. In the late 1980s, Robert spoke with a CBC morning show about taking the part of Relic and the lasting impact of the show. There's a very large hiss in this clip, and I did my best to get rid of it, but you can still hear it, so try and ignore it. Do you identify with Relic at all? Well, if you're going to play something, eventually, or ultimately, you've got to find it somewhere in yourself. So there are certain qualities, nasty ones, that um, are obviously um, floating around in me that I pull out. 
Did you ever think that Beachcombers would last as long as it has, 17 years? When it first started, I almost turned it down. Because I was waiting. Uh, Phil Keatley said, hang on a week for me, will you? Because, uh, and I said, look, Phil, I'm turning down work. I can't afford to turn down work. He said, well, just, just give me a few more days. Just give me one more, one more week. And uh, so I said, okay, but after that, I'm afraid I've just got to take other things because I can't afford to go on like this. And um, three days later, he phoned me and says, okay, we're going. Uh, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> so you have no complaints about your life? Why should one have complaints about complaints and things like that? They don't do you any good, and regrets are absolutely useless. So you always got to keep looking up there, not there, um, but it's from here on that you keep looking. If you don't, you're dead. So, <laughs> uh, but you see, I have uh, I have an awful lot of I have too many things. I I suspect myself of being the most ghastly dilettante because I have sculpture and uh, all kinds of other things that, uh, you know, even things like working on, on this house and, uh, and other things that I want to build, um, things I want to invent and uh, construct and all that sort of nonsense. I think you might retire from acting just to do those things? I could, I suppose. But I, I, I go ghastly broke because none of those things pay any money at all. <laughs> I'll be hungry in five minutes. <laughs> Everything was in place for the show, and it would follow Nick and his business partner, Jesse, as they dealt with a wide assortment of things and scenarios, all while dealing with arch-rival Relic. The mother figure of the show would be Molly working out of her cafe, the centerpiece of the community. In that first season, Nancy Chapel Smokler was cast as Margaret, as I mentioned, the granddaughter of Molly, and she would remain on the show for the next year and a half. Nancy relates. So my dad, actually, who worked in a very different area of the CBC, had seen a posting for an audition for a girl for this, this show, and he came home and told me that I was auditioning for it. I was 10, so I did what my dad told me to do. And I went in for the audition and um, I got the part. It was really cool. I, again, being 10 years old, you don't really understand sort of the ramifications of what you're getting into. Uh, but I'd always been involved in acting and theater. My parents were both, my mother was a singer, my dad was in broadcasting, so I'd been around it all my life. And it sounded like it was going to be a lot of fun. And I got to go on a ferry. And I thought that was really neat. And so, yeah, it was, um, I was very excited. Looking back on it now, I think it was something that was incredibly special to all Canadians. For me personally, as a little kid, it was just really neat to be able to uh, work on being an actor and get paid for it and meet what I now know are, you know, iconic actors like Robert Clothier and Bruno Gerussi. And he was a really interesting character. Of course, he was a well-established Canadian actor. He'd done Stratford. He was, you know, extremely well-known in his, in his uh, acting world. And I'm not sure that he, you know, he didn't really give us, the kids, a whole lot of time. But you know what? That was to be expected. But you know what? He was always really kind to me. And uh, I learned a lot from him. And uh, it, was, it was just interesting being around somebody like that and to sit and watch him do what he did. He was very believable as, a, as, a, as an actor. And it was just, it was fun. It was fun to be with him. Over the coming years, many other actors would join the cast. Jackson Davies joined as RCMP Constable John Constable in a bit part in 1974, becoming a regular cast member as time went on. Charlene Alec was cast as Jesse's little sister, Sarah Jim, in 1976, and Marion Jones was cast as Jesse's wife, Laurel, in 1982. There would be many notable guest stars over the years, but I'll get to those later. Jackson Davies talks about getting the role that would change his life. Obviously, because I was a fabulous actor, uh, I'd like to say that story, but it's not true. I uh, auditioned for it. The guy had one line, like... Uh, are you ready? No, I lie. 
Yeah. Are you ready to go? That was the line. I had to walk into Molly's Bridge, get the other RCMP officer and get him to leave. Uh, so I had, uh, I remember the audition. I worked on it. Are you ready to go? Are you ready to go? You know, I, I, I did it a million different ways. So I get there. Uh, they uh, do the line. They say, uh, oh, uh, can you grow a mustache? I went, yeah, sure. I can grow a mustache. He said, oh, all right. So uh, uh, what size are you? I said, I'm up. 42 tall. They went, okay. Then they kind of smiled. I think, well, maybe, you know, I guess. And then they, I did the line two or three different ways. And so I left them thinking, well, it's okay. My agent said, but phoned me and said, you got the part. I'm like, oh, cool. I said, it's great that they could, they could actually tell what a good, great actor I was by only one line. <laughs> but then I found out later it's because they only had one RCMP, extra RCMP uniform. Uh, my first day on, on the set was a, uh, um, rather interesting. I remember I, 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 I took the bus up the night before and I, if you've ever been, anyone's ever been to, to Gibson's or Molly's Reaches, I, I got off at the bus stop too early. I got off by Molly's Reach, but the motel I was staying was at something called School Hill and it is straight up for about <laughs> six or seven blocks and I had, you know, had a little suitcase at the time, but I remember walking up and thinking, my God, this is going to kill me by the time I get to the top. So, Worked the next day and uh, it was strange, you know, it uh, got there. And I think I, I think I squeezed two days out of it too, which was even better. But it was, you know, I'd, uh, I'd been on a couple film sets before. Uh, everyone was extremely friendly. Uh, Robert Clothier, the actor, and uh, uh, played Relic and Bruno uh, played Nick. Both of them were uh, theater actors, right? And they knew that, uh, that I had done a lot of theater in Vancouver in, in across Canada, even, even though I was only in my early twenties. So I'd worked with some people that had worked with them. So you have that kind of relationship where if, uh, if they expect you're, you're one of the tribe, it, uh, they're a little, they're, they're kind to you. And they were, it was, mm -hmm. uh, it was great. While the show was a huge hit by the time he came into the cast, he was not expecting it to be anything big when he first heard about it years earlier driving in northern Alberta, the actor's van, right? Although the actor's crew, it's Alberta, so it'd be the actor's crew cab. Uh, and uh, and they were interviewing uh, Nick Bruno, Jersey about the show. And I remember saying to the rest of the actors, God, this sounds like a terrible premise, right? A couple of guys go out and, and pick up logs in the water. I mean, how that's going to last like a week. And then the next year I was doing that audition I told you about. So I, I think they didn't think it was going to go. CBC Toronto thought they'd, uh, they wanted to cut it. They actually, they started filming in 71. They were, and they decided not to put on the episodes in 71. They, they tried some different episodes and, and they honestly thought when they put it on in 1972, uh, that it would just, they would just run out. They just wanted to run all the episodes and get rid of it. But after the first week, just something bizarre happened. And, I think it may have had something to do with the. We went on Sunday, October second, nineteen seventy-two, and Canada beat Russia in the in the hockey championship in that Thursday. So I think there was a kind of a sense in in uh, in Canada about wait a minute, you know, we should be proud of who we are, what we are, and the quirky kind of characters kind of caught on with people. Now I don't know whether it caught on in. In, in Main Street, Toronto or whatever, but it was a kind of a dysfunctional family. I mean, you had a Greek, you know, you had a couple of First Nations kids, you had a, a, a single grandmother raising two orphans on their own. Uh, and, and you have this really bizarre group of characters and this crazy character who would, who is just a scoundrel. And for some reason, those characters kind of resonated with, with, with Canadians. Maybe, I think maybe it's because of small town. You take a look at the history of Canadian television and the ones that shows that seem to be extremely successful are the ones one on the fringes, whether they're Corner Gas or Schitt's Creek or Beach or, or something else, you know, the shows, even Heartland is doing so well. It's, it's not, it's not, not downtown. It's kind of on the edge of, uh, of, uh, of this crazy country that we have and, and the characters, it's all, it's all about the characters uh, adapting to the, you know, to the world mm -hmm. that they're in. I, I didn't honestly didn't think it would certainly go 19 years, which is still the longest running, uh, you know, half hour show in Canada. Through it all, Nick would be the heart of the show, surrounded by strong characters whose backstories and characters grew over the course of the show. 
the show would become a mix of character, physical action, comedy, and location filming. It would be no surprise that when Jodie Franklin planned the art show focusing on the Beachcombers in 2020, Relic and Nick were the two most common subjects immortalized by artists in their work. Yeah, you know, I think the the iconic images of both uh, uh, Nick and Relic seem to inspire uh, the most in people because we did get a lot of images of them as compared to everybody else. Um, you know, I, 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 we we do have a couple of um, a couple of paintings of Molly's Reach, um, and then there are some sort of landscape. Uh, paintings of the area, um, of how sound, that sort of thing, the, the water, the mountains. But yeah, it would seem that both Nick and Relic were the ones that uh, inspired the most in, in the artists that participated in the show. While it was often a normal day for actors, those behind the scenes like David Kroll had to find solutions to many things in episodes. What, 10th season, 9th season? The show was pretty well running itself. It was, um, you know, we sort of jokingly used to say it was like being paid to go to camp. You know, I, I worked in the art department. So, um, you know, there are people who think, you know, Beachcombers was a simple eight hour day, you know, and it was sort of an eight to 10 hour day for those in front of the camera. But for those behind the camera, the art department was known as first in, last out. So, you know, we went, would go in, pre-dress a location, we'd be servicing the location all day, and then at wrap, we'd be striking it out. And quite often prepping the next day's shooting. So, you know, 14, 16 hour days were not uncommon for the art department. It was, you know, people don't really realize, and, and people in the film industry today are totally spoiled. Um, you know, we were on a tight shooting schedule. We were shooting an episode every five days. Um, we were usually in pre-production for the next um, upcoming five episodes. So, you know, you, you had a lot of balls in the air. And, you know, it was pre-days of cell phones. You know, we used, to, you know, people used to say, how did you guys manage without cell phones? And I just replied, we were organized. You had to be. There was nothing more humiliating than being out on set and the director would turn and say, oh, have you got something we could use for this? And if you didn't have something you could pull out of your hat, you were, you know, it was embarrassing. So we tended to um, over-prepare. Um, you know, the director said he was only going to shoot, you know, 90 degrees that way. We would prepare for 360 because we knew they'd change their mind. You know, with 125 people, you just don't have the the feeling of family that you that we did with Beachcombers. It was, and you know, everyone looked out for one another. Bruno, you know, may not have been the easiest person to um, to get to know, but once you knew him, you couldn't have asked for a better friend. Mm-hmm. You know, Robert, um, you know, an amazing performer, and he. You know, he, there were a lot of subtle things that went on behind the scenes that probably a lot of people don't know. Robert would get a script and he'd come into the art department and say, hey, I've got this thing. You know, I'd really like to, you know, take it up a notch. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'd bend over backwards to um, do stuff for Robert to make it to make it happen. For Jackson Davies, being on the set was always something special through the decade and a bit that he was on the original show. To say that your job was going, you know, to Gibson's and then head out in a boat and play around in the water, and uh, and uh, we had a great crew. Uh, we were far enough from Toronto at that time that we could just do our our, our own thing. Uh, we didn't have long hours. Um, it really was a little bit of a. a it seemed a bit. I didn't, it probably sounds terrible to say this. It seemed like you were on a holiday, you know, <laughs> not quite a long long way away from Vancouver, mm-hmm. but. Enough that it's uh, that ferry trip is is a, is a gorgeous ferry trip, but it's only forty five minutes long, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, you feel like you're in a different world. Gibson's would be chosen as the filming location for the show, and eight episodes would begin production in 1971. The restaurant of Molly's Reach was built into a vacant liquor store, with the character of Nick living in the same building, and his log salvage business being operated out of the building as well. 
In an interview in 2012, John Smith, the grandson of the man who built the original Molly's Reach structure, stated, It wasn't Molly's Reach then. It was vacant. It was at one time a second-hand store, a general store. It became a hardware store, then a liquor store. The liquor store had just moved out, and these guys were interested in using it as the main setting for the show. I was a beachcomber in those days, and they wanted to rent some boats and stuff, and we owned the marina, just below Molly's Reach too. They liked the look of the boats, so that was the start of it. Smith had believed it would be a short job, but the show would go on to exceed all expectations. The Persephone was the main starring boat of the show, but Relic's boats were also well remembered by the fans. Highballer 1 was used in the first season, and it was smaller than the second boat, which was used from the second season onwards and called Highballer 2. When shots on the water were needed of Nick on the Persephone, they were conducted with the aid of a custom-built barge containing props, a generator, storage rooms, and change rooms. This unique approach allowed for many angles and long shoots on the water, something that was not seen in the production values of Canadian shows at the time. The first episode of the show was going to be Jesse's car, but that was scrapped and instead, Partners was the first episode, showing how Jesse and Nick formed their business, which involved Jesse on his way hitchhiking down to South America, meeting Nick and befriending him and forming their business partnership. The show would premiere on October 1st, 1972, only a couple weeks after Canada had united for the Summit Series. Airing at 7pm, the ratings were weak, and many felt that Nick was unconventional for a leading man on a show. Over the remaining episodes, viewership increased as this family-friendly stories became popular among Canadians. In 1972, 19 episodes were ordered, and The Beachcombers was on its way to becoming an icon of Canadiana. Filming in Gibsons, especially as the show's popularity grew, presented its own challenges, as David Kroll relates. We used to get a lot of people that, that would stand across the street, and it used to drive the, um, the ADs and the traffic control people crazy, because people would want to see and would be constantly saying, no, you have to move out of the shot. And of course, they wanted to be in the shot. Um, from a community point of view, it was a bit of a love-hate. There were people that loved the fact the show was here, and then there were people that, you know, just didn't understand it and didn't want to have their daily routine disturbed by having to stop and wait three minutes while traffic was being locked up. When you think of it, it was pretty crazy trying to shoot film with live sound in the middle of a five-way intersection with, it with no traffic lights, right? <laughs> so we had traffic control people on walkie-talkies and, um, you know, we were very careful to try and not interfere with the ferry schedule. So when the ferries were, you know, if they, you know, we knew people were rushing for the ferry or the ferry was unloading, we would just call a break or try and shoot something that we didn't have to do a lockup for. In the mid-1970s, the Vancouver Sun wrote, The Beachcomber sits atop the ratings in its class and is in a knockdown fight with a hockey night in Canada as the most popular of all Canadian programs. Last week it outdrew Hockey Night in Canada with an audience of 3.4 million. The show would find a strong audience in Britain, as well as the United States, Australia, New Zealand, Ireland, South Africa and Germany. David Kroll talks about the far-reaching impact of the show. A fellow I worked with here, his daughter was an au pair in Turkey. And a fellow from Gibsons was visiting Turkey and went into a, a, a carpet bazaar. And, um, you know, right away the guy knew, oh, where are you from, Canada? Oh, you know. Gibsons, you know, forget <laughs> about the rest of them. It was right on to Gibsons, you know, and, um, you know, watch beachcombers in Turkey. Mm. Um, That's crazy. A lot, of US, a lot of U.S. military, they used to air beachcombers on the armed forces bases overseas. Mm. They didn't, we didn't air um, in the States, but we did air on armed forces bases overseas. So a lot of um, armed forces people, you know, which introduced us to a lot of a, a lot of Americans who otherwise probably, you know, would never have seen this show. The reach of the Beachcombers did a lot to show the Sunshine Coast to the world, something that had not been done before. Nancy Chapel Smokler relates. 
Uh, but I think the fact that it showcased the absolute, the beauty of, of British Columbia, it, uh, it showcased um, an older woman who was busy looking after two grandchildren and raising them after the loss of their parents. Uh, and the fact that it included all a variety of, of characters from very young to very old. It was, it, we, all, we also employed a lot of really uh, sort of older actors and, and sort of now being an older actor myself, I'm really grateful for shows that do, uh, that, that aren't ageist. So we had people like uh, Frank Wade who played Colonel Sprinklin and Reg Romero and people like that. And of course, Ray Brown who played my grandmother, Molly. And so it, it, was, a, it was a nice mix of people. And oftentimes television, certainly in, in this day and age, it tends to focus, well, it can focus a lot on sort of younger characters and the, the nice juicy storylines often go to younger characters. But it was quite, I think if the right word might be ecumenical in terms of how it spread um, across all ages, all um, backgrounds, cultures, languages. During these years, the show was a fixture for Sunday night. At 6 p.m., The Wonderful World of Disney would air, then The Beachcombers and its iconic theme song would come on and families would be transported to beautiful British Columbia. Jody Franklin, the owner of that art gallery in Gibsons, speaks about how the show impacted him growing up. Thinking back to it, like, I used to actually, you know, when I was a kid, I would take my Star Wars figurines and my Archie Digests. And, you know, I'd use Han Solo as Nick and an Archie Digest as, as, as a book and, and, you know, push it across the floor kind of thing. Um, so I don't know, there was something about it. Maybe the fact that it was uh, a kid-friendly show. Um, maybe the fact that it was one of the only Canadian shows that could reach you know, sort of all generations and, and, and everybody seemed to have something that they could identify with it, I suppose. But yeah, I don't know. Like I was born in British Columbia. I ended up moving back here as, as a teenager and there might've been some sort of um, yearning uh, to, to, to be back, uh, you know, near the mountains and the forests. But I think the landscape definitely played a, a big part in it. In 1978, The Strangers returned to the show and would write 70 episodes. Jerusi would also go on to direct several episodes as the series went on. Over the course of the show, the cast of characters generally stayed the same with very few departures. Ray Brown would leave the show in the mid-1980s after she retired from acting. In 1988, Janet Lane Green was cast as Dana, a single mother out of Toronto who bought the cafe and moved in with her son Sam. That same year, the Beachcombers became Beachcombers in an attempt by the CBC to give the show a new look. The theme song was also replaced with a new theme that nearly everyone who liked the show hated. Ratings started to fall in those years as the show took on a more action feel. And in 1989, CBC moved the show from its usual Sunday spot to Wednesday night, which caused a further decline in numbers. The last episode of the show would air on December 12, 1990, with Jerusi saying the last line of the show. We gave them a run for their money, didn't we? Here is the news report from that fateful day, July 30, 1990, when the show shot its last episode. Gave them a run for their money, didn't we? There was a double meaning in those final lines of one of the longest-running shows in television. And it certainly was not lost on an emotional crew during the last few moments of beachcomber history. Those hugs and kisses represent years of friendship and work, the impact of which has been felt around the world. Beachcombers has been shown in over 40 countries.
But for all its laurels, the show had a somewhat shaky and modest beginning. A beginning right. which producer Derek Gardner will never forget. And we felt like we were, you know, pioneers because nobody had ever had worked continually on the water like we had before. And, and um, a family feeling that was, you know, I, I think there were probably times that I felt closer to the people that I was working with than I ever had with my family. There were no secrets. You knew, you know, you knew everybody else and you knew them right down to their soul. It was a, it's a very strong feeling. Just take some pictures. Stop talking. <laughs> These days, cast and crew are still pretty tight. But the difference is, some crew members were literally babies when beachcombers hit the airwaves. Others were young upstarts looking for a break. It was funny, I was thinking last night as I drove up for my last night here, and I remembered the first night 16 years ago that uh, I, the difference was that this time I drove up in a $50,000 sports car last year. I mean, 16 years ago, I came up in a $150,000 Greyhound bus. Beachcombers has certainly helped to create some stars. Perhaps none more than Bruno Terusi. There are a few people with lumps in their throats. It's a sad moment, but... Uh, How's your throat doing right well, now? Oh, I'm all right. I'm tough. <laughs> <laughs> How are you going to think about Beachcombers? How are you going to put that into perspective? I, I'm not going to dwell on it. You know, there'll be times sometimes. and Maybe the, you know, come spring of next year when normally we start shooting, there might be a, like an old horse heading for the barn or, or heading for the fire truck or whatever. I, I, I might feel something, but you know, I, it's just something you put in perspective and there you are. But for diehard beach fan Phil Collin, it's hard to put the end into perspective. He flew out from Airdrie, Alberta, just to see the final episode being shot. I'm very sad to see it go. I'm never going to follow another show like I followed this one. And, and uh, to not see any more new ones after this, I think, is going to be very sad for me and uh, Canadian people as a whole. For many, the end is sad, to be sure. But at a spontaneous rap party at Molly's Reach following the final scene, tears and champagne were interspersed with lots of laughter and some words of wisdom from Relic. Don't look back, you look there. And um, that's what I'm going to be doing. Cheers, Robert. All the best to you. The show to replace the Beachcombers in its time slot on CBC was Sydney, which starred Valerie Bertinelli, Matthew Perry, and Craig Berko. Never heard of it? because it ran 13 episodes. Now let's take a break from talking about the Beachcombers to talk about podcasts. And I've been listening to podcasts for a very long time. And one genre that I've always really enjoyed is true crime. But it seems like today, every other podcast is true crime. But one podcast actually dates back to the earliest years of the genre. Sword and Scale was launched in 2014 and it led the way for true crime podcasts that would come after it. Now with Canadian History X, sometimes we delve into crime stories, stories about evildoers and Canadian history, but for a really good podcast that takes a deep dive into the stories of the evil that lurks among us, there's Sword and Scale. Sword and Scale is the longest true crime podcast that combines 911 calls, interrogation audio, and more to tell the real stories that make you sleep with the lights on. It's hosted by Mike Boudet, and he narrates each episode to immerse you into the story. His podcast reminds us of the lessons of George Romero and his Walking Dead movies. The real monsters out there are people, and this podcast expertly relates those stories about the truly evil that walk among us. Sword and Scale is available bi-weekly on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe today and leave them a review. That's Sword and Scale. Also available at swordandscale.com. Subscribe today and give it a listen. Sword and Scale, proving that the worst monsters are real. So with a show that ended 30 years ago, why am I talking about it now? Most of the people listening likely weren't even alive, or they were very young when the show ended. As for myself, I was 10 years old when the show ended. Well, I'm talking about the show because not only is it a part of Canadian history and our culture, but it was something truly unique. It was the first Canadian series that did not follow an American model. It gave a regional slice of life, and it depicted a blue-collar work that was rare on television at the time. It was also set in BC rather than filmed in BC and pretended to be a different location. Its use of Indigenous elements was also rare, featuring many storylines that looked at Indigenous issues using Indigenous actors. 
Above everything, the way the show highlighted the Indigenous was exceptional for its time. In talking with those who were influenced by the show or watched the show, its use of Indigenous actors and storylines was ahead of its time. Jackson Davies, Nancy Chapel Smokler, and David Kroll relate. The strange thing is when you think of Canada and, and what our show was about, especially with the Indigenous characters and how I had this great relationship with, with, all, you know, with all the characters in the show, whether it's Sarah, the young girl, or obviously Jesse, uh, you know. And nowadays, now when you look back at it, it's one of these things you go, were we telling Canada what it was really like in Canada or maybe, or were we? So you look back and you think, okay, uh, I mean, we'd get lots of wonderful feedback from indigenous people that, that would say that um, it was great watching the show that for the first time they could see someone who looked like them on television. And this was a scoop generation too. Right. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, and that's, uh, that was great for, for, for Charlene and, uh, and, and Pat John and Corey and, uh, and, and the rest of our Indigenous uh, actors, that there was some something that uh, that someone could look at and say, you know, that's me up there, as opposed to, hey, we're from a generation of a lot of old white television. And uh, uh, I think that's, you know, uh, I guess that's a kind of a two-edged sto uh, story about we were doing those things. Okay, we, I was looking at an episode the other day that, that had us, okay, there was a, it was when we were introducing a female RCMP officer, which was a kind of an interesting thing at the times. And this was, I'm thinking the show was 78, right? So we're talking a fair bit of time ago. And, and the show opened with someone unveiling a statue of someone. And we find out during the show that this person was extremely unkind to indigenous people in the community, right? Kind mm -hmm. of like, you know, what we're seeing today. Yeah, and then yeah. the, the statue disappears, right? So I'm thinking, this is 78. And we're doing something that people are talking about today. Mm -hmm. uh, and, it, and every once in a while you go, wow. I mean, we did shows about uh, uh, land rights. Molly's Reach was on indigenous land and, uh, and the lease was coming up. Uh, uh, so it's, uh, I, I, I think there was an attempt there. To, to tell those stories. And, mm -hmm. and I don't know how successful we were, but uh, uh, I kind of hope the intent was, uh, was, it was accepted in the right way. But the fact that we featured Indigenous uh, actors throughout the entire, um, you know, 17, 18 years run of the, of the show, and that, you know, Pat John, who played Jesse Jim in it, um, who was actually, if I'm not mistaken, and I, I think you can probably confirm this, but he was uh, one of the last children to be in an, a residential school. And he came to us and became one of the most popular characters in the, in the entire um, show. I, as a, a counselor with the town at some of the events I've been at and speaking with First Nations people said, you know, they all agreed that they, they, it was the one show that they that reinforced their identity, their elders, their culture, um, and their sensitivity to the environment, which a lot of us are just starting to pay attention to again today. So, mm -hmm. you know, huge impact. Um, so I think it's really important that um, that aspect of the show be preserved, particularly during the, this era of reconciliation. The show resonates today on other Canadian shows, many of which have followed its template in some ways. Corner Gas literally compared its own characters to those of the beachcombers in the episode Cable Access. Hey, you ever notice how it's like the beachcombers around here? Yeah, if you replace the ocean with no ocean at all, the similarities are eerie. No, 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 think about it. Uh, the Ruby's Molly's. So Lacey's Molly? She's gonna love that. And I could be Relic. You could be the chunk of Deadwood that gets hauled off at the start. You think maybe the Beachcombers was the best Canadian TV show of all time? I always kind of like Street Legal. Street Legal sucked! Okay, he should be Relic. In 2019, even The Simpsons referenced the Beachcombers. The show was well-loved by Canadians, 
but not all critics enjoyed it, with some calling it stilted and wooden. One interesting review came from Grant Lawrence, who called it the greatest show in the history of television, but added that it was about a Greek guy and his First Nations buddy driving around in their boat collecting logs. Every week for 20 years, it was like the Dukes of Hazard on water and 100% Canadian. The show would make its cast members household names across Canada, especially Bruno Gerussi. One wonderful story I found from a local history book relates when Gerussi came to the community of Hussar in 1976 as part of a publicity tour he was on. Gerussi was familiar with the area as he was born in Medicine Hat, and a look-alike contest had been held in southern Alberta as part of the tour. The winner of the contest was a man from Medicine Hat, ironically. The community arranged to have the look-alike come to the community, and after some phone calls, upon finding out Jerusi was also in the area, they were able to convince him to join the festivities. Jerusi ended up riding a horse in the summer day's parade, giving delight to the people who didn't realize he was going to be there, along with the man who looked just like him. Here's a clip from Ontario from a contest in 1978 to find someone who looked like Bruno to appear on the show with him. Hi, I'm Bruno Gerussi. Hi, I'm Bruno Gerussi. Hi, I'm Bruno Gerussi. Hi, I'm Bruno Gerussi. We've been looking everywhere for somebody who looks like me. So here's your chance. If you think you look like me, send your picture to us and you may win a part opposite me and the Beachcombers. Send your picture to this address. Gerussi Lookalike Contest, Beachcombers, Molly's Reach, Gibson's BC, V0N1V0. Jerusi would become a major star in Canada thanks to the show. From 1975 to 1984, he would host Celebrity Cooks on CBC and then the Global Network. That show would run for 478 episodes and it featured a pre-famed David Letterman, Margaret Trudeau and even Jean Beliveau. One fan of the Beachcombers was Conan O'Brien and he related a story that in the early 1990s he was in Vancouver with his friend Greg Daniels who would go on to make The Office. They were watching TV in their hotel room and became mesmerized by the beachcombers. O'Brien would say, it was about a bunch of guys picking up logs in water. And they were very interested and impressed with Pat John's character, Jesse, and they set out to find him. They quickly found his name in the phone book and called him, telling them they were producers looking for new talent. In reality, they just wanted to meet him. Revivals of the show would come, including the new beachcombers in 2002, which featured Graham Greene, Dave Thomas, and Jackson Davies, it would return as another television movie in 2004 called The Beachcombers Christmas, and a documentary was released in 2003 called Welcome Back to Molly's Reach. As for Molly's Reach itself, that building still exists with the sign that appeared on so many Beachcomber episodes. The building was originally built in 1926 as a grocery store, and it served, as I mentioned, in various retail functions until it was leased by CBC. From 1990 to 1995, the building sat vacant until investors turned it into a functioning restaurant. Today, that restaurant might be one of the most famous restaurants not only on the Sunshine Coast, but in Canada. The building would be used again in 2010 when it was renamed Flynn's Reach for the movie Charlie St. Cloud, starring Zac Efron. In 2016, the Vancouver Sun called Molly's Reach the most prominent landmark in Gibson's. The Persephone still sits in Gibson's, next to Molly's Reach, and there's the hope of restoring the ship and having it as part of the local museum, which itself has a beachcombers display. Jody Franklin and David Kroll talk about the lasting impact of the show on Gibson's. There's still people um, that come here from all over um, <clears throat> to actually sort of gawk at Molly's Reach, or, you know, there's the Persephone... Um, the Persephone boat, which is right downtown here, a block a block away, they're actually going to be moving it to a new location soon uh, because a developer bought that corner. But there are these couple of icons here that tourists uh, still come to visit. And if you do a search online, you'll see pictures of people outside of Molly's Reach waving or pictures of them with the Persephone, which was next boat. Um, so, so yeah, it still sort of resonates with people. Um, and the house that Bruno Gerussi lived in um, is partially visible from the art gallery here. It's sort of on a cliff overlooking town. 
And so it's kind of uh, a fitting spot that I can just sort of walk out the door, uh, stand on the balcony and, and, and see across the water to, to Nick's house. Well, you know, there was a thing, one of the local realtors run and, you know, put a posting on Facebook that he had the listing for the business, Molly's Reach, not the building, just the beach, the business. And the number of hits that got was amazing. Um, you know, you put on um, Facebook, you know, a clip with the Beachcombers theme music and all of a sudden you know, it's got a million hits today. Mm-hmm. You know, so there is still, you know, you still get people standing in front of Molly's Reach. Um, presently, at the moment, the, the vessel, the Persephone that was used in the show is sort of on the same sort of space as Molly's Reach. And between Molly's Reach and the Persephone, the number of people who stop and have their pictures taken, it, it's it's staggering. It's, you know. We joke, you know, ex-crew who still live up here jokingly say if we had a nickel, you know, for every photograph that was taken in front of Molly's Reach, we'd be, you know, incredibly wealthy. (laughs) And, you know, it's, you know, before it used to be busloads of people arriving, we'd get busloads of Japanese, German, um, European tourists coming through on, on tours. And they'd stop in front of Molly's Reach, all pile out of the bus, all get their pictures taken, pile back on the bus and gone. The beachcombers would have far-reaching impacts on Canadian culture. Molly's Reach, a power pop band out of Edmonton, named themselves after the centerpiece location of the show. The show itself would inspire others like North of 60, the Republic of Doyle, and the aforementioned Corner Gas. It also helped CBC expand its programming and production to regions outside of Toronto, and it raised the profile of Vancouver as a shooting location. Vancouver was nearly empty of film and television productions in the early 1970s. By the time the Beachcombers ended, Vancouver and British Columbia would be known as Hollywood North, with such shows as The X-Files being filmed there. Without the Beachcombers, it's likely that would have never happened. Gibsons would benefit from the Beachcombers as well, even beyond the money that comes in from fans of the show visiting the community. Needful Things was filmed in the community in 1993, The Irresistible Blueberry Farm in 2016, and The Seamstress in 2009. Its international reputation increased that year when it was declared the most livable community in the world by the United Nations. Those who worked on the show in the early days were often new to the entire industry. They would go on to help define the filming scene in Vancouver for decades to come. Many of the department heads in Vancouver actually got their start or were employed on the beachcombers, with some estimates being 1,000 people worked on the set at one point or another and then went on to other careers in the film industry. David Kroll saw the growth of the industry firsthand during his time on the show. If it weren't for CBC and beachcombers and Overlanders and Ritter's Cove and Red Surge, I doubt very much it would be the film industry that is here today. Um, because what we did is we created the, we, we provided, we had the crews here. We, the craft was here, which made it very easy for um, foreign producers to come in and put a crew together. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't just a crew together. It was a very talented crew because they'd learned the hard way. Um, you know, when I look back at Beachcombers and we did 21 F episodes with under a million dollars, in direct costs. And, you know, today you look at episodes produced by Amazon or Netflix, and they're spending 10 or $12 million an episode. Mm-hmm. You know, and even taking inflation into account, you know, we did, uh, you know, we produced Beachcombers with a total crew and cast of 35 people. Um, John Clothier, Robert's son, is um, so much like his dad, and he's in the film business today as an amazing steady cam operator and camera um, uh, camera operator. And, you know, he's so much like his dad, um, you know, just a, a really great person to work with. It's, it's interesting to see, you know, generations um, that started in Gibsons mm-hmm. uh, on Beachcombers are, are, you know, second and third generation in the film business. Um, John Sleep, one of our um, special effects men, his son now is running his 
what was John's special effects company, he's now running it. Um, Steve Sleep, who's one of our lighting guys, is uh, is still with the local cable company. So people have sort of, you know, stayed with the business, you know, in some cases still up here, but um, in most cases, there's not many of the old crew still living on the coast. Many prominent Canadians, actors and otherwise, would come through the Beachcomber set. Chief Dan George, one of Canada's greatest Indigenous actors and the first Indigenous person to be nominated for an Academy Award, appeared in eight episodes of the show from 1972 until his death in 1981 as Chief Moses Charlie. David Suzuki appeared on the show as himself in 1981. Several notable actors appeared on the show before they were famous, including future X-Files villain William B. Davis in 1986, Don S. Davis, who would go on to appear on Twin Peaks, and as General Hammond on Stargate SG-1, he appeared in an episode in 1989 and would eventually move to Gibson's. Bruce Harwood, a future lone gunman on the X-Files, was in an episode also in 1989, while noted Canadian actor Ian Tracy appeared in 1988. Ryan Stiles appeared in 1985 on an episode before reaching fame with Whose Line Is It Anyways? Janet Wright, who would go on to play Emma on Corner Gas, appeared in an episode in 1987. Bruce Greenwood, another well-known actor today who played Captain Pike in the new Star Trek movies, appeared in two episodes in 1977 and 78, while legendary Canadian actor Gordon Pinson appeared in three episodes from 1975 to 1978. Interestingly, during my research, I found a rumor that a very young Michael J. Fox appeared in the 1973 episode of The Beachcombers called Truck Logger, but in 2012, he wrote the foreword for the Beachcomber book, Bruno in the Beach, noting, I must have been the only actor in Vancouver that never appeared in a Beachcomber episode. So, I'm guessing he was not in an episode, but maybe I'm wrong. As for the cast, Bruno Gerussi would continue to act on stage and on film until he passed away on November 21, 1996 at the age of 67. Robert Clothier would continue to act, appearing in several shows including The X-Files. In 1996, he had a stroke that confined him to a wheelchair, but he continued to act and sculpt until his death in February 1999. Ray Brown would pass away in 2000. Pat John started working as a fisherman and even has a beachcombing license for clams and shellfish on the coast just north of Gibson's. Jackson Davies would go on to be a driving force behind the beachcombers' subsequent TV movie projects, and has appeared in over 300 TV shows and 30 movies, along with 160 stage shows. An honorary sergeant in the RCMP, a very rare honor for anyone, he is now a faculty member in the Performing Arts and Motion Picture Arts programs at Capilano University. In 2013, he published a book with Mark Strange about the beachcombers called, and I mentioned it earlier, Bruno and the Beach. Charlene Alec would become a cultural preschool teacher and serve three terms as a council member on her First Nation. By the time the show ended, it had been broadcast in 50 countries, was the longest-running drama series in Canadian history, and it would average 1 million viewers a week in its prime, huge for a country of only 20 to 25 million. But it never earned any major awards apart from a Gemini Award for Clothier's performance as Relic in 1986. Even with that, the show is endured as a part of our culture and is well-loved by generations of Canadians. In 1998, it was ranked the most popular CBC series in a TV Guide poll, and the most popular Canadian family series ever in a poll done in 1999. In 2017, the Toronto International Film Festival named The Beachcombers one of Canada's all-time best television shows. So why does it resonate? Jody Franklin, David Kroll, Nancy Chapel Smokler, and Jackson Davies talk about the impact. Canadian shows in the 1970s that really sort of, I don't know, it was maybe the right place at the right time. You know, there was the Beachcombers and then the CBC also had the King of Kensington, which was sort of their urban Toronto counterpart to, to the Beachcombers. And um, so for anybody that was part of that generation, I mean, you didn't really have much choice in terms of um, Canadian content to watch on television that was sort of, uh, you know, universally accessible. So, <clears throat> but I also see something too, um, you know, I, I've had this theory that the template for Trailer Park Boys 
is sort of based on the beachcombers because if you look at it, you've got two buddies, Nick and Jesse, or Ricky and Julian, um, sort of <clears throat> they, they're, they're, they're business partners that are uh, chasing after sort of a natural resource. In the case of Nick and Jesse, they're chasing logs. In the case of Ricky and Julian, they're trying to grow dope. Uh, <clears throat> then they've got this sort of drunken or in the case of Relic, maybe an implied drunken kind of, you know, scallywag sort of antagonist. Um, they both have the bumbling sidekick in Constable John or Bubbles. Um, you know, there's there's this whole, you know, you, you could almost, you could go through all of the characters um, mm -hmm. on the Trailer Park Boys and find like analogs on the Beachcombers. So it almost seems like the Trailer Park Boys was like an updated version, like a, a more 90s uh, or, you know, 2000s version of uh, what the Beachcombers was in the 70s and 80s. I think Beachcombers was, it was a family show. It was classified by CBC as a, as a kin adult show. Um, so it was aimed at children and, you know, it was a family show and families would sit there together watching the show. Um, I think part of it was a tradition of watching. Um, we touched, you know, it, it was always a show with um, a moral, the you know good over evil the good guy usually won out although the guy who was purported to be the bad guy who I think was probably one of the more lovable characters I, people were very endeared to Robert Clothier's relic um, but uh, it, it's a feel-good show people you know when we had our open house or you know, I would be back east with family watching the show. People would say, oh, I remember, you know, we used to have a blender like that, or we used to have a toaster like that. and Or, you know, it was just things that people could identify with. And the other thing that was really popular with the show, it's, um, you know, a lot of people couldn't afford to travel. So it was sort of a window um, to our nation. Um, so, you know, it we used, to, I think one of the things that, you know, drove the decline of the show was we had so many characters in it that it turned into talking heads and we missed what we used to call the Antilly postcard shots. You know, we sold, we sold scenery and um, that resonated with a lot of people. Quite often, you know, we'd get calls in the production office, you know, wondering how we did the background. You know, was it green screen? Was it, uh, was it a glass mat? No, it was... It was real. And we played it up to the hilt. You know, when we did, when Expo was on, Beachcombers was still happening. So a lot of people who came to Expo, because they knew the show from watching it in Europe, watching it in the, you know, in all these countries around the world, suddenly a day trip to Gibson's wasn't such a bad idea. And people would come up and, uh, you know, you know, visit Gibson's. And to that end, a lot of, you know, there's a company here called West Coast Log Homes. The fellows who originally started that company used to watch the show in Germany and, you know, ended up here because of it. Mm -hmm. You know, people who um, went into the RCMP because of, you know, because of Jackson. Beachcombers is one of those feel-good um, shows that um, people have a lot of very fond memories. Mm -hmm. You know, as a kid watching the show before I even moved out here, a kid, teenager, you know, my parents loved it. My dad uh, served in the Forestry Corps in the Second World War, and he trained in British Columbia. And it was always his intention to retire out here, which is why I moved out here. And then my parents never moved out here. But um, my dad used to, you know, just adore Beachcombers for the scenery <laughs> and, the, and the characters. I think there's yeah. a bit of relic in my head. I think, again, I think you're quite right. As a 10-year-old, I would have had absolutely, I don't think any of us really had any clue how well entrenched it was going to become in the Canadian culture and in the Canadian psyche. But if you look at things like that Friends of the Beachcomber Facebook page and other, if you search the Beachcombers on Google, it's, it's remarkable how it has, uh, it's taken a toehold and it has just become such a, 
uh, a favorite around the world because we were um, uh, we were sold to countries around the world like Germany and and Australia and different places like that. So it's really it's a legacy. It's a legacy in a lot of different ways because it was. I mean, it came on the heels of things like Rainbow Country, and there were other shows that came after it, like Danger Bay and and things like that. But it's it's just been such a. Uh, I'm just really incredibly proud to have been affiliated with it, particularly in that first year, um, and to be able to say that I was associated with it. As I think anybody who was associated it with it would say, is you know, hey, this is really cool. I was on the Beachcombers. I mean, hey, if Ryan Reynolds likes us, my goodness, you know, yeah. you know, you've made it when Ryan Reynolds thinks that we're okay. I think its relevance is is seen in popular culture today. Uh, it there's a lot of people my age who watched it, grew up watching it, and because it had such a long, um, uh, you know, shelf life that it it lasted so long, and that it's come back in repeats, although not as far back as people like Jackson Davies and myself would like to see, um, it's still out there and people are still really jazzed about, about seeing it. Um, so yeah, it's really neat to see that. And as I say, when I get on that, that, that Facebook page or if people make the connection that it's me who was the original Margaret, um, it's, it just makes you feel really good to think that people still care as much as they do. What it reminds people of? Uh, there's this wonderful lady that came up to me the other day and she smiled, not too close, obviously, in this new world. But <laughs> she was saying that uh, seeing me reminded her of her dad in Sunday nights after mm-hmm. Disney. And she called it the three B's, right? It was like bed, bath, and then beachcombers. Uh, no, bed, beachcombers, bath, and then bed, <laughs> right? And, uh, and, and it was a simpler time. There was like mm-hmm. two or three channels. There's like one TV in the house. So if you're going to watch television, you'd watch it with your family. And there's probably not that many shows now that people do that uh, on a, certainly on a, on a, maybe on a Sunday night or whether, you know, I'm sure that with PVRs and everyone having their own TV or watching, you know, watch streaming something mm-hmm. that you don't do, you don't sit down as a family anymore and, and watch it. So I think that's it. I think that's it. I think they remember the show as a kind of a simpler, gentler time in Canada and probably the world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so maybe it's a kind of a feel good and it's got a lot of uh, good emotional equity. So I'm going to finish this episode out by repeating something that Ryan Reynolds had tweeted out five years ago. And that was to bring the beachcombers back. So CBC, please put it on gem. I hope you enjoyed that episode about the beachcombers. And if you did, please leave a rating and review. You can reach me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find hundreds of articles on Canada's history, as well as all my podcast episodes on canadaehx.com. And if you want, you can support the podcast. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have. Aaron O'Hara, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roa, Luke S., Vic Hedges, J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, Spencer M., Renee Beliveau, and Iris Gray. Information comes from the Canadian Encyclopedia, mollysreach.ca, Trail Times, CBC, Wikipedia, City News 1130, IMDb, Scout Magazine, Canada Through My Eye, Hussar Heritage, The New Beachcombers, Metro US, Outside Looking In, Television Heaven, and GrantLawrence.ca. Thanks, we'll see you again next time.